Well, if I look like someone who's been living in a basement for the last 10 days, <laughs> that's because I have. Uh, COVID paid a visit to my household and uh, everybody's doing okay, recovering uh, on schedule. You should know that um, I, have, I am here because I have tested negative. I have not experienced any symptoms. Uh, otherwise, uh, another one of my colleagues might have had a very exciting Saturday, <laughs> like, uh, like Amy did last Saturday. Amy, thank you for preaching so eloquently and elegantly with less than 24 hours notice. I might add, thank you. Uh, and if I may say one more thing. Uh, I know that um, this is a scary time uh, and we all get spooked along the way by what's happening. Uh, some of us more often than others, but I want you to know that I have full faith in our congregation uh, to make it through this time intact. And I think the best thing that all of us can do is simply to do our part to keep ourselves and our families and our communities safe in the way that we know how and to trust God to do the rest. And in God's own time, these pews will not look, as one of my mentors used to say, as much like a lumber yard <laughs> as they do now. And those of you who are joining us from home and, and seeing us here and wishing you could be here, I believe that for most of us, that time will come. Keep doing your part and trusting God, and this too will pass. Now, the very first psalm makes it plain. There's a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. Those who meditate on God's instruction and do the right thing will prosper. And those who live lives of wickedness and wanton wrongdoing will perish. There's no gray area. Two ways, two ways alone. The righteous are like trees planted by streams of water. They yield their fruit at the expected time. Everything they do prospers, but the wicked blow away like chaff in the wind. If you've ever separated the grain from the chaff, you know that the seed that's heavier, it falls to the ground and you lift it up and the wind carries the chaff away. They wither in the company of the righteousness of the righteous. They lose their way until finally they're, they're blotted out. We love, I love, Psalm 1 for its simplicity. Other neighborhoods of the Bible require some light stretching before reading. What's that? You'd like me to read Job? Okay, just give me a minute. And, and after spending an hour or two with Job or, or, or the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, we find comfort in returning to these simple passages, to the, the brief refresher courses of our faith, like this introduction to the Psalter. We sit with Psalm 1 like children sitting before our kindergarten teachers. And they say to us, little children, do not follow the advice of the wicked. And in all that you do, you will prosper. Except that the moment we step from Psalm 1 and all of its simplicity and its black and whiteness 
to, to Psalm 2, we go from simplicity and certainty to questioning God. Any naive assumptions that we made in our introductory course on prayer here begin to unravel. Psalm's first word is happy, also translated blessed. Oh, how happy. Oh, how blessed. But Psalm 2's first word? Why? Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? And it doesn't get any easier in Psalm 3, which begins, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? But Psalm 1 beckons us down the path of righteousness. But when we follow it into the shaded wood of the rest of the Psalms, there are all kinds of trials and tribulations waiting for us there. We thought we were taking the right path. So why aren't we happy? And why aren't we prospering? First, remember that by happy, the psalmist does not mean cheer and sunshine, but blessedness. This is a deep, a deep happiness. It comes from the psalmist delighting in divinity wherever and whenever she finds it, day or night. The happiness she describes is rooted in blessedness because she's focused not on the counsel of the wicked, but on the things of God. She isn't blown about by every wind and doctrine. Because she meditates on God's instruction, she's like a tree planted by streams of water. And as the African-American spiritual sings, like a tree planted by the water, I shall not be moved. Now, even though we might identify, and I know I do right now, more with the voices that introduce, introduce us and open up the Psalms 2 and 3, why? And how many are my foes? We might find ourselves longing for the simple certainty today of the first psalm, the first prayer of the Bible's prayer book. Prayer book. There are two paths, one to life, the other to death. But what, pray tell, no pun intended, does the path to life look like? The path to life looks like meditating during the day. The beloved African Archbishop Desmond Tutu, affectionately called Arch, went to be with the Lord not two months ago, the day after Christmas Day. Now his close confidant and fellow pastor Peter Story, what a great name for a preacher, <laughs> Peter Story, man. Peter Story recently shared some stories about his beloved friend, Arch, and about Arch's prayer habits. He offers a couple of glimpses of Tutu's prayer life that serve as sort of like Polaroid snapshots of the psalm, the first psalm. Story said Desmond would go on these monthly prayer retreats and it would drive him nuts because he, he was left felt like he was left behind to do all the work and Desmond's going off to this prayer retreat every month and he'd just wake up every morning hoping, looking at the newspaper, there wouldn't be some great crisis that he had to address by himself. He said one time uh, the prayer retreat got a call from President Nelson Mandela, in fact, one of his assistants, called the retreat center and the mother superior replied, I'm sorry, uh, Bishop Tutu's not available. And uh, the assistant said, I don't think you understand. President Mandela wants to speak with him. 
And Mother Superior said, I don't think you understand. Bishop Tutu is talking to God. Arch, do you have a minute for the president? Sorry, I'm meditating day and night. Story said another time they'd been through Namibia to do a press conference uh, where they helped expose some of the atrocities of the South African Defense Forces. And these are nasty guys. It's some awful things. And they had been investigated and they came and did this press conference and revealed some of the atrocities to the whole country, really to the whole world. And on their way back to the airport, they found themselves in a lounge that was full of people in fatigues, members of the Defense Force. They were surrounded and outnumbered, and Story said he was concerned that one of them, he said that you could just see the hatred in their faces. So much he was worried that one of them would come up and strike one of them, especially Arch. He said while he was worrying, Tutu looked at his watch, and he pulled out his prayer book, and he began to pray. And Story said the room fell silent and stayed silent, And somehow people were disarmed. What do you do, he said, with a praying man? Like a tree planted by the water, I shall not be moved. The psalmist says, meditate day and night. Jesus prays at night and after a rough day. He just created an uproar on the Sabbath by... (gasps) healing someone a man with a withered hand and Jesus looks at the man and he says stretch out your hand and the man does that and Luke tells us that the people who witnessed it were filled with fury and they were discussing with each other what they might do with Jesus. And so Jesus goes out on the mountain to pray. And Luke says he prayed all through the night. Have you ever done that in your life? Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus prayed. But we can imagine Jesus prayed silently and aloud. We can imagine Jesus gazing up at the stars as he speaks with his father. We can imagine him weeping and sweating, moaning and muttering, groaning and bleeding. And raising his voice to God. But after this night of prayer, he comes down with wisdom. And that's the day in Luke when he chooses all 12 of his apostles. The psalmist says, meditate day and night. She invites us to dig around this word, meditate, and discover that by meditate, she really means attach your heart to God's heart. Recently, doctors did a study about human hearts in marriages. And in long marriages, did you know that hearts set in rhythm? When people who've been married a long time are close to one another in proximity, their hearts become syncopated in rhythm with each other. Maybe not beating at the same time, but together in an organized way. They actually did this with Fitbits and proximity monitors. (laughs) (laughs) By meditate, the psalmist means attach your heart to God's heart. Sync the rhythm of your heart with the rhythm of God's heart. Then the prayer time or the prayer retreat 
if we have that luxury, becomes not only the time that we pray, but an expansion and an intensification of what Paul calls incessant prayer. Pray without ceasing, he tells the, Thessal the Thessalonians. Monthly prayers, morning prayers, noon prayers, evening prayers spill into every hour until there's no part of life we live apart from conversation with God. The roots of the tree planted by the stream are always saturated by the river whose streams make glad. And on his instruction, they meditate day and night, the psalmist says. I remember a conversation with a, a teacher 20 years ago. I'd become fascinated by monastic practices. I was a seminary nerd. <laughs> fascinated with practices of prayer, how they how people could live their whole life set in motion, their whole day and their whole night structured by times for prayer. The times have names like Vespers and Compline and Matins and Louds. But the practical theologian in me spoke up and said, I love that there are people in the world who do this, but I don't have time to do this. I have too much work to do to pray like this. And she said, have you ever considered making your work your prayer? I want to relay this question on to all of you with a little tweak. Have you ever considered making your life a prayer? Hardly any of us have time to pray day and night by hours that have names. We have promised to pray together a psalm each day in our own way. But we have tests to study for. We have patients to see, children to raise, parents to care for, businesses to run, illnesses to endure, bills to pay. Meditate day and night. But what if your trust in God's presence brings during this test that you're taking, what if your prayers and your trust in God land on you in the moment of this test in a way that strikes you? That you're praying, whether, maybe whether you want to or not. What if by tending to your patient with patience, you become a living prayer that reveals God's patience? What if the tender, tenderness you show your child at home becomes a living prayer that reveals God's tenderness? Who knows what kind of different world we'd all be living in today if just the people of faith alone, or we have to start somewhere, if just the people whose faith calls them to pray recognize that the call to prayer is a call to a life that prays. For one, the wicked would not be thriving today as they are, and their time will come. In the final version of Scripture, Revelation 22, the angel shows John a river flowing through the city.
and on either side of the river is a tree. And on the tree there are twelve kinds of fruit, and the fruit ripen according to their season, each in their month. And there is the fruit, but what are the leaves for? John says, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. I wonder if you know that you have that much power. When our prayers and our lives sync up with each other and to the rhythm of God's own heart, in our time on this earth, constituted as it is by so much anxiety and worry and wickedness, God issues a call to prayer that grafts us into that tree of life and makes of us stewards of healing. Friends, hear the good news. God shapes our lives and to prayerful lives for the healing of the whole world.